This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I invite a supremely talented person to eat top-notch food with me while we chat. Today, I talk to an actor who's known for her calm, knowing presence on screen whilst all around her chaos reigns. She starred in many brilliant TV series, W1A, Killing Eve, Good Omens, Brave New World and Last Tango in Halifax, to name but a few. It is the wonderful Nina Sassonia. Somebody said, what's that on the back of your skirt? And there was a huge red star saying 599 exclamation mark. <laughs> would that have been what the casting director saw as you left the room? That would have been what the director <laughs> saw as I left the room. Hello, Nina. Hi. Uh, hello, hello. <laughs> it's a strange man in my kitchen. You have got a strange woman. Well, I've got a strange woman in my in my study. <laughs> Welcome to Out to Lunch. There should be a delivery coming to your door any moment from uh, yeah. the wilds of Greenwich Peninsula, which is not that far away Ooh. from you. As a kind of diving in point, a lot of people will obviously know you for your role in Last Tango in Halifax. Sally Wainwright was the writer and you played the love interest to Sarah Lancashire or part of that couple. Did you immediately know that it was going to be a significant piece of work for British TV? It was significant to me, mainly because of the quality of the moment-to-moment writing that was really, really attractive, because Sally was writing and always just writes characters that you immediately... Even if you don't recognise them, you can you can just really hear them. You can see them um, in your mind's eye. But also there was, and it seems amazing that this should be a thing, but for its time to put a same-sex relationship into Sunday evening drama, which in yeah. many people's eyes was the cosy one, was that also an attractive element to you? I mean, yes, and yet it was, it was still the quality of the moment-to-moment writing that was really, really attractive. What did happen was that I started to get a lot of feedback from people for whom the show had been a real turning point in their lives. It had moved so many folk in ways that I didn't really appreciate a television programme could do. Are we are we talking about women saying that they felt brave enough to come out or their parents saying, I now understand my own daughter and that sort of thing? All of the above, yeah, yeah. Because the part grew throughout the the three series that I was in, which was really gratifying because it was sort of, I mean, you know, until they killed me. But um, (laughs) I was going to get to that. (laughs) Up to that point, it was great. How much warning did you get? Did the script turn up? Did you get a call from the producer saying, Nina, darling, you've been fabulous. Just a little note about what's <laughs> going to happen in the next series. Or or was it the blue pages it's turned uncanny. up? Was it you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it was me, yeah. No, the producer was lovely and was, you know, gave me a call before any of this script had come through for the third. So I always knew going into the third series because you have to do a read-through, you know. The um, interesting bit was that 
not everybody else around the table in the read through knew that I knew. So we're sort of feeling terrible for me as they flicked forward through the script. <laughs> Spanning through the pages. To see, yeah, yeah, to see what my reaction might be. Well, <laughs> m- much missed. And it's amazing that um, Last Tango and Halifax may to con- continue for two and a half more series after that. It's Without me. Without okay. you. Yeah. Nina, it's absolutely yeah. shocking. By the way, your doorbell may okay. well go and you'll find a, a person right. there with a bag and then I can explain everything to you. All right. Okay, see you in a minute. Right, well, let me tell you what you've got. So Greenwich is an interesting place when it comes to takeaway options. And I found my way to Eat Fan, which is a Taiwanese place. And so what you've got in there, well, what originally you should have in there is Taiwanese fried chicken, prawn, asparagus and coriander rolls, um, some Taiwanese braised pork with some garlic broccoli. You may have a second thing in there because I asked them what the difference was between Taiwanese fried chicken and Japanese fried chicken because they do both. And uh, basically the Taiwanese is marinated in beer and the Japanese is marinated in sake. And then they said, we'll send you both. How marvellous. So if you want to have a dig through the bag and see what's there All right. uh, and see what you fancy. And I've gone for a place called Mamalan's, which is Beijing street food. You've said that when you were growing up, you look different to everyone around you. Your father was Nigerian and your your mother English. Yeah. At the point when you were born, that was not a common thing to see on the streets of Britain. No. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you were, I think, born in the 70s. Still a difficult time in terms of race. But you've also said you didn't feel that race issue very much as a kid. I actually went to... The same school that my mum went to, which was directly across the road from our block of flats. In fact, it was a cul-de-sac, so I didn't even have to cross the road. I just literally walked <laughs> a few feet, turned around, waved to my nan and walked in. Um, and it was such... Now, I realise, I didn't realise at the time, a culturally diverse school. All of my friends had names from, from Greece, from Cyprus, from Bangladesh, Jamaica... Britain, we had the first black headmaster in the country at that school. That was the norm, all of those different types of children. In the adult world, yeah, I was the only person of any other colour, but it sort of didn't register because school was very multicoloured. So the the classic inner London experience, was it a positive one? Yeah, it absolutely was. I may have been slightly cosseted because I did just literally not even cross a road to go to school. And I I lived with my nan and granddad and my mum, who were all very protective. And then we would take trips every weekend and every summer holiday to my aunt and cousin's house in the country. I don't think I had a typically inner London experience as a child. So was your dad around at all? or had... No, he was, he was back in Nigeria from when I was four. My childhood was nan and granddad and mum. There is a story. Your mum took you to a lot of theatre and you went to the RSC mm. at Stratford and she told you that they, the actors work over there in that big red brick building and they live mm. in those cottages there and that your response was, that sounds like a really good job. Absolutely. I sort of assumed that... That was for other people. And it was actually, it was my mum who put the idea in my head. And then when I laughed at her suggestion, she just kept sort of, well, why not? What's, what's so ridiculous about that? 
And I think she could see that that was sort of the best thing I've, <laughs> I had I, the best chance. <laughs> you've been with the RSC, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And you must have done that thing, which I is worked exactly in the big that. red building and live in the cottages. Now, I have various friends who are actors, some of whom I'm sure you'll know, who have described it to me as being at times the nuttiest kind of maddest summer camp for a, a bunch of drama queens you can imagine that is brilliant but it's also quite intense and weird you do that probably once and then you get digs if you ever go back to the to the rsc so that you can live a bit further away from the theater but personally i did it about three times where <laughs> you live because it i just found the madness and the, the again the family of it kind of intoxicating it even even when it's awful I, I found it amazing so but what did you first go in as players cast in actual fact I was working on phones at the time for charities and I had to go and buy a skirt to wear to the audition and when I got back to my my day job after the audition somebody said what's that on the back of your skirt and there was a huge red star saying 599 exclamation mark <laughs> Would that have been what the casting director saw as you left the room? That would have been what the director saw <laughs> as I left the room. And I've got a feeling, I don't know, I think I get my best jobs as I leave. Because <laughs> something about that must have... So they go, she's cheap, we can have her. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We don't have to pay her anything. She's just pleased to be here. She'll live over across the road, not even in a house. By the way, did you tell any difference between those two kinds of chicken before I... I've only done one type so far. I've done Japanese, which was... Really, really lovely. So, shall I try the other one now? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. Oh. And I've got duck spring rolls. Hmm. Okay. Mmm. That's difficult. Okay. I, I, I should do this more often, actually, get my guests to do a kind of. A taste test. A taste well, test, yeah. This Taiwanese fried chicken, the spices in it are more like southern fried chicken, that's what I mean. The Japanese one is sort of more of a delicate flavour. And the texture is slightly different of the coating. It's sort of finer. Well, that actually seems pretty much what Fan Jia from Eat Fan said to me, because he said that the, the Taiwanese would be slightly peppery, slightly spicier. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right, well, you know, we've learned something, haven't we? I was looking at all the things you've done, or, or a cross-section of them, and one of the qualities that I associate with you is you being a still space while chaos reigns around you. Certainly true of... Kate, Sarah Lancashire's character, Caroline in uh, Last Tango in Halifax, is a maelstrom of emotions, and you're very, very sorted. In W1A, um, you're also playing Lucy. You're, you're, again, a calm space, a doer, someone who gets stuff done. I think it's true in Killing Eve as well. Um, And even in Nathan Barley, all the tossers are wandering around. You do seem to get cast a lot as... The, the still person who has a sense of control. Is that an unreasonable suggestion? Yes, I often play the sort of still point around which, as you say, the, the chaos happens or the outside observer. Even in Teachers, I was um, away from the gang in um, a thing called Brave New World that I've just done. I'm away from the gang in the thing that I've just done called Little Birds. I'm away from that. It's, it's very, uh, even though they're all very different parts they're very different characters in themselves the function that they play within the story is is often that outside eye and um and i i'm not quite sure why that is 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 that also you 
do you stand alone? I mean, you, you've also said in relation to Brave New World, which we will talk about, one of the, the factors of Brave, features of Brave New World is no privacy. Everybody knows what you're doing. And, and you've said that people need to hide. They need to be private. Is, is, that, a, is that an element of you? Yeah, maybe that's something that I sort of give off in wavy lines that, that people <laughs> find is really easy to pick up on and I'm just not that aware of it. I think it stems from the kind of family that I'm from. We're not that, um, I don't know, maybe growing up with my nan and granddad who have a, a different generation where you, you didn't, I mean, I think they would be kind of appalled uh, at, at the way that we function now in terms of social media and how we publish everything, every second thought that happens in our heads. Um, that just wasn't done. It wasn't, it's not that it was frowned upon, it just the, the, the idea of, of saying what you really think. <laughs> to anyone who you know that you don't live with or who's not your close friend it just seems odd and bizarre so maybe it's maybe it comes from that that but, they but were I think private you, people you have that sense as well you're not on social media in any major way are you i, I guess it's to do with also the fact that I, I can't work out why people would be interested in what i have to say what did actually strike me, I, I, I saw an interview very recently and obviously there was a bit of conversation about, you know, what you got up to in lockdown and carpentry, mm-hmm. woodwork. And you were talking in certain ways about dovetail joints and the footstool you had made out of two types of wood. Very lovely yes. footstool. Thank um, you very much. And the draftsmanship. And, and I scribbled a note to myself and I hope you're not going to take this in the wrong way but the word i wrote was nerd <laughs> and i i meant it in the in, in i'm the, very proud thank you <laughs> there is a nerdy interest in the mind in the small details of things that make things work yes yes absolutely uh, i suffer from the inability to retain any kind of information so everything is always very interesting to me because it's like i'm finding things out for the first time, particularly with this whole woodwork joinery thing. I found real calm, actually, in in concentrating on tiny accuracies or inaccuracies in my case. And is it also an element of living in the moment? Because you can't really think about anything else, can you, when you're creating a dovetail joint? I think that's where I found... Somebody had asked me a while ago how do you relax and I, I, I don't know I lie down I read stuff I, I, I don't know uh, but all of that stuff is interesting and has your mind whirring and it's not actually that relaxing and this is the first thing I found where I think my mind does relax because yeah you're right you can't think about anything else there's not really that much room for worrying or worriting really about <laughs> other nonsense <laughs> Now, only because we're called out to lunch, I'm going to check in on, on your food. Okay. Uh, I've got um, Mama Lance does very good chicken wings with uh, chilli oil, which I've always liked. But you've got the braised pork, so don't complain. I've got, this is like, this is, this is hearty. Look at that. Oh, look at that. That's, so, and it's weighty also. Well, you know, you can always shove it in the fridge and, and, and leave it for later. Um, and yes, you should have, when you're ready, there's some prawn, asparagus and coriander rolls. I don't know whether that means they're like summer rolls or spring rolls. Or I'll have a look. Let me have a look. They're like spring rolls. Ooh, with uh, 
some sort of dipping sauce. I'm hoping this is sweet. I, I do like sweet, savoury food, if you know what I mean. No, I absolutely do. When it's come to choosing parts, where the choices have been, it sometimes seems you're well up for something disruptive and complicated. W1A, the, yeah. the comedy was in just how horribly realistic it is. You've signed on for adaptation of Anais Nin, which is, uh, what's the word? Filthy. Anais Nin should be filthy. <laughs> Uh, it's provocative. <laughs> Do you hunt out a piece of work that's provocative, that has a provocation in it? See, that depends on your definition of what is of what is provocative or, or, or what is going to stir something up. So, for instance, to me, Last Tango, that, w- that was just sort of, well, about time. Why, hasn't, why haven't I read this before? That didn't seem very out there to me. That seemed like it, that's something that we should have been watching a while ago. WNA was uh, the, the writing itself from moment to moment was just too difficult and, and juicy to, to let that go out of my grasp. I fought hard for that. It was hard to get. And I, I was oh, really, very, very that pleased. part, did you have to be seen many times for that part? I think I, I think I was seen three or four times. Um, the last time with you as a sort of chemistry read, I think. Hugh Bonneville, and I, yeah. Yeah, I think we got that because we'd had no chemistry. I think that's what they were after. <laughs> well, that's the brilliant um, thing. They're, they're two people yeah. who are rubbing up against each other very uncomfortably. Exactly. The, and the Anais Nin, that, yes, that is provocative. That is That goes to places that I find really, really dangerous and... Um, and exciting. You know, Anais Nin was very famous for her titillating. Well, some of it was. Some of it was pure pornography, frankly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, your character, yeah. uh, Lily Von X, uh, um, I believe, turns up at one point saying that the greatest orgasm she'd ever had was watching an execution in Paris. Mm. It's, 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 it's full on. Does that make it fun? It made it huge fun. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the most interesting and frightening scenes I've ever filmed. Actually, that was the that was my audition as well. That always makes it harder because you've got a you've had a you know you've had it in your head for months, uh, and then you finally come to do it in front of everyone, and that's that's when it drops out your head. But fortunately, it didn't. It's it's provocative in so many ways, and it's it's used brilliantly, I think, in that scene in order to poke the girl that she's with, Lucy, to, to, to poke that character, to steer that character gently <laughs> or not so gently down the road that she then goes down through the whole six episodes. And Lily is sort of there as a, not even as a guide because she doesn't um, assist her in any way. She's just sort of, like we were saying before, observing her, changing. But it, it's, she's providing a catalyst um, and you can see it land in this young girl's mind. Every word she's saying, you can see it. This was never. This was never part of the intention, because the, the the story is word for word almost. But if you have a woman of color talking about someone being hung, watching someone being hung, and her response to that, it has a visual impact. You're saying something about the line between life and death. You're saying something about how people cope, don't cope. It's just saying something very profound and I'm not quite sure exactly what that is and I don't think, I don't even know if that's my job to know what that is. But clearly you've thought about it in some detail. I I don't set out to be anyone's role model or um, I'm not teaching in any way, but I want to be able to justify to myself 
what I'm doing and saying and the, and the visual impact impact and uh, that I'm having. And so, yeah, I had, to, I did think about that quite a lot. Hi there. I'm Ollie. I'm the executive producer on out to lunch. And this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Imagine you had the time it takes to have lunch gifted to you each day, an extra hour. What would you do with that time? For me personally, after listening to Out to Lunch in a swanky new restaurant, I'd love to spend more time actually sampling the food there myself. Now, a lot of us wish we had more time, but in reality, if something is really important, then we make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. It can help you clear your head and take control of your life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Plus, it's entirely online to save those precious minutes. With over a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. That's betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hello, I'm Giles Brandreth, and with my friend, the world-famous lexicographer Susie Dent, every week we do a podcast all about words and language and their origin. We're all over the place this week, all over Great Britain, all over London, all over the world. We're talking about the origins of place names. There's somewhere in Bromley called Pratt's Bottom. Hard to believe, but it's true. Can I tell you about Charing Cross? Please. Charing goes back to an old English word meaning a turn or a bend, either referring to a bend in the River Thames at this point or the bend in the old Roman road that existed. But the cross refers to the Eleanor Cross erected here and in several other places, actually, by Edward I to commemorate his first wife, which was Eleanor of Castile, and her funeral procession went from cross to cross. So it's got a lovely story of love. Am I right in thinking that people think that the centre of London is Charing Cross? That when you see a sign, when you're approaching London, it says seven miles to central London, it is seven miles to Charing Cross. Absolutely right. All distances calculated from there. So if you'd like to hear more about the etymology of London, tune into the best entertainment podcast, Something Rhymes with Purple, which is available on all the podcast providers that you know and love. We're not just saying it's the best entertainment podcast. We won an award. Incredible. <laughs> Brad's bottom. Hard to believe. To return to the issue of race and ethnicity, you said you're not there to teach, but it's very hard to avoid it at the moment with it being such a big question and a subject in the age of Black Lives Matter. Looking at all your roles, I couldn't see a single one where you had been cast as a result of ethnicity. There are a few, um, but they are in the minority. Um, so there was the White Sargasso Sea. There was Counter Hot Tin Roof, where they oh, that's actually a, a swap. You're right. I've mostly been cast 
as if my colour were incidental. Which is the way it should be. Well, I don't want to say it's always the way it should be because there are roles where race is obviously very, very important. Yeah, what I would like it to be today, maybe not tomorrow, because <laughs> I reserve the right to change my mind. But it seems like it should be, I don't know, 50-50, maybe, you know, a great a great CV would, would include just as many roles that were required of you to be the, the ethnicity you are and the other 50% where it isn't. But then, you know, you could say, well, isn't it always relevant? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to, how to square all of that. When you were turning up at the big institutions like the RSC um, and the National, were there many people who looked like you around? No, there were, I'm going to say a handful, maybe meaning possibly maybe five Maybe there were more than that because, but it was, it was a bigger, it was a big company because, of course, you're. There are lots of shows going on. Also, you're not privy to all the casts because because yeah, you're in rep as well. Coming from the background I come from, it's not the thing that I notice, and so in the last few years, and particularly this year, it's it has become the thing that I notice. But I particularly notice it when I'm watching things when I'm looking rather than being in something because that's my norm I suppose so when you're watching what's your view what are you what are you thinking when when I'm watching I see to be honest I see uh I tend to see the lack of women more than I do the lack of of color I've started to clock that a lot more um and I suppose I've started to get more affected by it do you find yourself, Fina, I mean, I, I suppose I'm being responsible for it now, that you're being forced to discuss ethnicity, race, colour by the news headlines rather than who you are? Yes. However, it's, it's, it's not like that's not always been the case. I've always been asked about um, diversity or lack of it. Is it bloody annoying? It's hugely annoying. <laughs> it's annoying because... Well, it's annoying because I've been doing a few interviews, which I don't really normally do, um, and I've been doing quite a few, and three people have said, I know you don't want to talk about diversity, but... And it's fine, but it's sort of... It's as if I said, I know you don't want to talk about wearing glasses, but can we please talk about the issue of your sight? Because I can see it right now, and you you clearly wear glasses. You can't hide it. Um, and I'd like to define you by your glasses, if that's OK. And if, if that happened year on year... Interview after interview, you know, you, you would go, can we not, can we not do that? Fair enough. We're getting the part in uh, Killing Eve, which is brilliant for female... Well, it is female characters. Did you watch series one thinking, I'd love a part of that? You know, we were talking earlier about the type of things that I find provocative. Yeah. Well, in terms of violence and killing people. That's <laughs> really not my bag. I don't kind of watch that sort of stuff. So actually, I hadn't watched any of Killing Eve because it just wasn't on my radar. That kind of program isn't on my radar. And so I heard about it when I was uh, offered a part in it. And so then watched it and then sort of an oh, God, that's really turning my stomach in so many ways, but couldn't avoid the fact that it was brilliantly written and just brilliantly performed I mean goodness me they're just so good and also to be honest the part was quite different to uh the way it ended up working with those women I, I mostly worked with Sandra O and Fiona Shaw they're just extraordinary and uh, the writer and uh, it was just 
wonderful working with that balance, actually, because there were still just as many, it was sort of 50-50. So it wasn't like it was, it was, we were overrun with estrogen. It was just... No, but the lead just, parts for once are all women. though. just feels, and it feels great. And um, that was another thing that was fantastic about Last Tango, because I had, I realised after the first series, I'd never spent that much time with another actress. Usually, even on stage, you're... There's two or three women, particularly in Shakespeare, and most of your scenes are with somebody of the opposite sex. And it was just so interesting to be acting with another woman for so long. On stage, um, particularly working with people like Josie Rourke, uh, which I've done a few times, it's it's more um, more the norm for me, um, if it's not uh, Shakespeare. <laughs> Is that part of the joy of what you do, the, the relationships with not just with actors, but with old friends. You've done a lot with David Tennant over the years, or at least it feels like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he just keeps turning up like a bad smell. <laughs> Casanova uh, and uh, at one end of your career staged during lockdown. Yeah. In which you played yeah. the producer, another authority figure trying to pull him and Michael Sheen into yes, line. and another one where everybody else was playing themselves except me, and I was playing... <laughs> Yeah, what is it? What is it about me? But David was actually that first season that that I auditioned for. David was there. First season. First season of, sorry, the RSC. And then I went back to the RSC a good few years later and we were actually playing opposite each other in in Love's Labour's Lost. So that was very cool. Um, Was staged fun to do? Um, To describe stage, it was a drama basically played out on Zoom calls. Yeah, but it lent itself brilliantly because it was about two actors who were supposed to have been mounting a play. Um, Then lockdown happened. And so their director is trying to get them to at least rehearse on Zoom for the moment when suddenly everything is fine and we go back into the theatres and they'd have the jump on on everybody else. So it's quite mercenary. And it sort of revealed the pettiness of, of the two characters. They're not really playing themselves. I would be doing them a disservice if I said they oh, were. Oh, don't ruin it. The idea that David Tennant <laughs> and Michael Sheen were really that petty and <laughs> is, is deeply attractive. I have to ask, how, how was your Taiwanese braised pork? It's very, very tender and uh, and sort of fruity. Both of those things really... Yeah, I like those things. Just a brief break from all the out-to-lunching chat to pimp my wares, if you'll allow me the time, because now your favourite podcast comes with real physical stuff too. Stuff we've designed to make your kitchen life both more comfortable and more glamorous, your friends more envious. Or, of course, if you're a generous soul, you can give them away as Christmas gifts too. It's not one, but three bits of tasty merch that are here with me in my own kitchen. Firstly, this deliciously designed travel cup. Ah, that's fantastic for all your slurping needs on the move or at your desk. Now, I've lost count of the number of shirts I've stained in the kitchen, but it's a thing of the past since I started wearing this... That's the sound of the out-to-lunch apron in weighty, riveted denim. And in times like these, we all need to be good to ourselves, so why not invest in the light and soft out-to-lunch tea towel? Ah, yes, this is me stroking it. To see the range, head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com. That's outtolunch, all one word, dot backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com. But now, let's go back to the chat. The big one that's, uh, as we're speaking, has just started screening, is um, the adaptation of Brave New World, uh, where you get to play a character with the minor name of World Controller. 
Yeah. Um, Where do I go from here? I know. It feels to me like there's an adaptation of Brave New World for every generation. This one, and I'm going to phrase this gently, I think it possibly outdid Game of Thrones on the nipple count. When the scripts came in, could you see that that's exactly what it was? It doesn't, it's not that explicit in the um, in the stage directions. Is it not? Because, you know, something says they they make love frantically or gently or whatever it is. That they're just, depending on how your mind works, uh, you see what you want to see. But, I mean, my character doesn't particularly partake. In, <laughs> no, indeed. Well, you're the world controller. You're above these things. Why would it? Yeah, exactly. And if she does, then you're not going to see it, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> frankly. Uh, are those big production numbers, huge sets, when they in Cardiff and then the Savage Lands out at Dungeness on the, uh-huh. on the Kent Coast, are those huge productions fun to do or are they disorientating for someone who's so used to the, the intimacy of stage? There are so many strands to the story. There are so many other uh, plot lines going on that you just come in and do your bit and and leave again. You don't really know how it's all fitting together, what it's what it's really looking like. And that's kind of part of the fun, but also part of the f- slight frustration, I suppose. So is it reasonable to suggest that a mockumentary like Nathan Barley or W1A or something like that is, is rather jollier? than the very technical stuff of something like Brave New World. You just have more input and you have more interaction with other human beings, particularly something like W1A. The way that John Morton, the director-writer, writes, he writes scenes that are um, nine, ten pages long, which is not not how television works. And they were ensemble pieces. There they, they were, you know, eight, nine people contributing to a scene it's it's written to sound like it's improvised and it really isn't and so getting together and rehearsing that and trying to get that right as as a company it's a properly collaborative thing and um and that makes the day go by in a instant so have two sides of you been sort of tugging away during lockdown the the nerdy woodworking side of you that actually finds it rather agreeable and the actually side of you who would like to be in the room. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've done a few read-throughs on Zoom for plays. I've done some audio dramas and the screen goes blank and that silence is so profound once you turn that off and everybody's voices disappear. That's when I feel so incredibly lonely and I miss just different people that I don't really know. (laughs) I'd love to be in a room with people I don't really know that well again. Well, I hope you're back in the room with a lot of people soon because (laughs) we all need that, do we not? We do. I didn't realise how much we did, but we really do. Nina, thank you for agreeing to stay sort of in for lunch for me. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you, and you. Excellent. I fear Nina won't get much time for her carpentry. You can catch her currently starring in Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials on the telly too. Nina ate Taiwanese courtesy of Eat Fan in Greenwich and I went for Mamalan, Beijing street food from Brixton. Both are South London based. And if I may be so bold, may I suggest some more actors from our archive that you might enjoy listening to, such as the wonderful Kathy Burke, the supremely talented Jesse Buckley or the hilariously gossipy Jason Isaacs. And please do subscribe, share, comment, give us a favourable review 
review. Five stars. Why not? It helps us to keep making these wonderful podcasts. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Jemima Rathbone was assistant producer. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time we serve up the bits that we simply couldn't squeeze into our original episodes, those juicy morsels that are just too good for the cutting room floor. It's out to lunch, an extra serving. A friend said to me, it's literally like, you know, when they would send out like Marilyn Monroe to the troops, we'd like all get dressed up and then we'd all go up there, have some fags around the bike sheds with them, have a clumsy snog and then go back and feel like we'd done something quite philanthropic, I think. <laughs> 